Welcome to the podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi. To learn more about our church, our beliefs, and our pastor, please visit fpcgulfport.org. Outside of Jesus Christ, there's no one that has had more of an impact than the man we call Moses. Moses was used to deliver God's people, to bring them the law, and to build the tabernacle. However, in God's time, Moses died. In today's study of Deuteronomy 34, we'll consider the final days of this great man of God. Over the years, Moses had gone up mountains multiple times to meet with God. On a number of different occasions, Moses had ascended a mountain in order to meet with God there. The time we're most familiar with is when he received the Ten Commandments. In today's text, Moses would do what he had done multiple times before. He would go up the mountain, but this time he would not return. This time Moses would die upon the mountaintop. Now, what do you think the last thing that Moses saw was? What do you think the last thing he heard was? The last vision that we're going to see as we jump into today's study, the last vision that graced Moses' eyes, it was a look into the promised land. God had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he had renewed those promises across the years. Moses himself had looked forward to this great day, and here on the mountaintop, he beholds that which was promised centuries ago. He beholds the promised land. And he sees in that moment that the promises of God are not void, that God can and will do everything that he has said he would do. So Moses looks out, and as he looks out at the promised land, dear heavens, it's so much better than where he just came from. Moses had just come out of the wilderness. Moses had just spent 40 years wandering around with the people in the wilderness. And now he looks out, and he sees the promised land, and it's every bit as good, every bit as great as God had told him. This is truly a land flowing with milk and honey. I don't know what that looks like, but it sounded pretty good, especially in contrast to the wilderness that they came out of. This was a land that was green. We see palm trees in here. This was lush. This was desirable. There was any manner of things about this land that was far superior than that in which he had come. So Moses' life, in a sense, had been building to this moment. Moses' ministry had been building to this moment. At one point, God had commissioned Moses to deliver his people from bondage to Pharaoh, to deliver his people. Now, here's the thing. It's true of them, and it's true of us. When God delivers you from something, when God delivers you from one circumstance, he also delivers you to another. You understand that? When God delivers us from one thing, he delivers us to another thing. In the case of the Israelites, the wilderness was not the end game. God delivered them from Pharaoh. And they spent time in the wilderness, but ultimately he was delivering them to the promised land. So this was the day, this was the moment, this was the time that Moses' entire life and ministry had been building towards. And it all culminated in his own eyes and his own ears as God whispered, this is the land. This is the land. So Moses saw this. Now, as we look at today's text, I want us to be encouraged. You and I, too, live in the wilderness. We might not recognize that at times because at times it's fairly nice, at least here locally. And yet this is the wilderness, and God has trained our eyes just as he has trained Moses' eyes to look towards a promised land that awaits, and to have our entire trajectory, our entire life's course, to head towards that day and that location. So in today's text, on the one hand, we're seeing a story of one man beholding the promised land. On the other hand, today's text is a call for us to look forward to that day when we will behold an even greater promised land yet to come. All right, if you would, let's look now, verses 1 through 4, we'll reread these verses and work our way through the balance. Verse 1, 
Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab, which were no great shakes, the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, which is up towards the north, all of Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the south and the plains of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land. This is the land of which I swore, which I promised, which I covenanted with you, to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. And I have caused you, caused you, Moses, to see it with your own eyes, but you shall not cross over there. All right, before I unpack these verses, I want us to recall that if you've read through the book of Deuteronomy, you'll see a few chapters earlier in chapter 31 that God had already told Moses what was about to go down. In other words, nothing that's happening here in chapter 34 is a surprise to Moses. He didn't go up to chapter 34 and all of a sudden realize that this was the end. God had told them way back in 31, also in Numbers, he had told them this is what's going to happen. This is the time frame. This is what to expect. So in chapter 31, God told Moses that the end is near and even told them when and where it was going to occur. But he said, go and get your house in order. And so Moses did, and he offered all the people a series of blessings and, of course, a series of warnings as well. Of course, he taught the individuals, he spoke to the individuals about the things that they needed to do in the time to come, and yet he blessed all of those that he had loved and led for all of these years. And when that was complete, when those actions were done, it was time to go up the mountain. And that final action, that ascending, is what we see in verses 1 through 4. Now, in verses 1 through 4, The descriptions we have of going from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho, if you're a cartography sort of person, you understand that this meant he literally went to the tallest mountain range and to the tallest peak in that mountain range in order to look out. And from that vantage point, he beheld something he'd wanted to see really his entire life. He looked out and he saw it to the north and the east and the south and and to the west, this breathtaking landscape which was greater than anything that he had expected into the distance of the land that God had promised. And as his old eyes took this in, as he took this in, as he filtered this experience, this sensory experience that he was seeing, he hears the word of God whisper to him and said, this is the land. Moses, this is the land. This is the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You know, there is something cool about those moments in life, however rare they may be, when faith becomes sight. When that which we have believed, maybe for decades, only to find out that God, God has fulfilled it in our time and in our sight. For decades, Moses had been leading by faith. I mean, he'd been in the wilderness. That's all he really had to work with. He'd been leading by faith. Now, God had blessed the people. He'd given them the quail and the man and all these different things. God had protected the people and put a hedge around them. Their sandals hadn't worn out despite being in the wilderness. God had protected the people, and yet it was just a miserable time. It was miserable for Moses in particular because the people were grumbling all the time. Man alive, if you read anything that the people of Israel did during the book of Exodus or Deuteronomy, what you'll see is that this was a rebellious house. They grumbled and they complained. There was even a point when Moses basically said, God, kill me now because the people, they're just too much for me. I can't take this anymore. I can't take this anymore. 
So Moses had had this very difficult, very challenging time when he'd been out in the wilderness, and yet at this moment, the faith that he'd had for decades, the faith he'd had across all these travels, the faith he'd had even as things were going miserable, the faith he had after day after day of things just being so difficult for him, the faith that he had had, that God had sowed in his heart, is fully realized and validated in this moment. Moses, this is the land. Everything you've done, all your ministry, it's paid off. You have done what I've asked you to do. You delivered the people from Egypt, and you've delivered them to the door of the promised land. Moses had believed for decades that God could and would do exactly this. Moses had believed and had faith, even when this world gave him 10,000 reasons not to. And after decades of having that faith tested and even critiqued by others, they had critiqued him, they critiqued his faith, they critiqued his leadership. After all this time, he realized that everything God had told him had been true. You know, that's exciting to think that there's a day for you too that will come when your faith will become sight. There's things right now that you take by faith. Well, here's the good news. God's intention in his time is to validate every ounce of faith you have ever placed in him. There will become a time when faith will become sight just as it was for Moses. Now, before we look at verses 5 through 7, I'll ask us, the promised land of Canaan, that no longer holds as much appeal to us per se. And yet Christ himself, Christ said, hey, church, hey, new covenant community, there is a promised land that's even better than that one. There's a promised land that awaits. And he introduced that promised land when he was talking to his disciples on the night he was betrayed. He gathers them close when they're anxious, and he says, hey, let me tell you a little bit about that promised land. He said this, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. Moses worked all his life toward the promised land and toward being the recipient of the promises that God had long made to his forefathers. Well, the promise that Jesus made to the disciples in the church is even greater, and it's on our horizon as well. Okay, let's look at verses 5 through 7. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died, and his eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. There has never been, never, 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 never been a man like Moses. Outside of Christ himself, who had the advantage of being fully God and fully man, outside of Jesus Christ, there's never been a man utilized on this entire planet to do the things that Moses did, to accomplish all that he accomplished. To the degree he's considered the great intercessor, the giver of the old covenant. He delivered God's people. He brought them the law. He helped construct the tabernacle. He led them to the promised land. This is one of the greatest profiles any leader could ever desire. And yet, interestingly, in verse 5, he dies. What does that tell you? This is the most important man in the era of his day. In all of the cosmos, there was no man born of a woman, no man of flesh and blood that was as critical, you could say, to the kingdom of God and to the working of God's purposes than Moses. And yet, in verse 5, Moses died. What does that tell you? It tells me we're all replaceable. It tells me that we all minister for a season. However long that season may or may not be, it's a season. And in God's time, he will raise up others like Joshua. 
to continue the work. And therefore, as he continues that work, the glory goes to God and not to man. Scripture refers to Moses as the servant of the Lord. Don't miss that. The greatest character in Moses' story is not Moses, it's God. In God's time, as wonderful and amazing and as just tremendous a human being as Moses was, in God's time, he called him home. Now, did he call him because he looked at Moses and said, oh, Moses, you're looking kind of creaky. Moses, I'm just feeling so bad for you. The arthritis is kicking in. You're just shuffling. Moses, let me do you a favor. Let me, let me call you on back. Enter into your rest. Did he do that? Was Moses in that sort of condition? Well, at 120, I would think he would be. But interestingly, Scripture says that wasn't the case. Scripture says that his eyes had not grown dim. His natural vigor was not diminished. Moses was still at 120 years old, the powerhouse. I hope to be at 50 and 60. He was a powerhouse. And we know he was a powerhouse because he did something that I couldn't do and I don't think we all could do. He went up this mountain at 120 years old. We know that he was capable. We know he wasn't shuffling. We know he wasn't near death because he climbed a mountain in the very text we're looking at. This was a man that God didn't call home because he just couldn't bear to see him falling apart this way. He called him home. Why? Because his time was done. And his utility in the eyes of God was complete. That'll be true of us as well. There'll come a time when God calls us home. And rest assured, he will not do so until he is convinced that our utility, our kingdom utility, is complete. Now, here's the thing. We might question that timing. We might say, I could do more. I grow more experience, more what have you. And yet God knows what he's doing. And he knew when it was time to call Moses. He knew the time to call Moses was different than the time to call McShane. He knew the time to call Moses was different than the time to call Aaron, which was much earlier. You, know, you and I, we have a challenge when it comes to mortality. You know, one of the things that's developed, and I think it's a 21st century North American sort of thing, the bucket list. You know, I looked across theologians, and I said, surely, this concept of a bucket list, surely a Turretin, surely Spurgeon, surely Calvin wrote about the bucket list, surely. Not so much. It's something we've developed because we have this idea that with the time we have, we should experience everything we possibly can and do everything we can. And I get that impulse. There's a lot of stuff I want to do. I just mentioned Bob Ross and violins. There's things we all want to do. And yet, in God's time, he will call us home. Moses never went water skiing. Moses never ate a chocolate bar. Some things we take for granted. Moses never had a po' boy. There was a lot Moses didn't do. But in God's time, when Moses' season was done, God called him home. And that's okay. We don't understand when God calls our loved ones home. We don't get it. We don't like it. And yet, if we look at what they've meant to us, if we look at how they poured their lives into our own, we rejoice that not only did we know them and experience those benefits then, but we continue to reap the benefits of having known them in the first place. There's the old saying that you know, people don't really die, that they live within us. Well, in this sense, they do. The experiences we've had with them continue to infect and inform us in the most positive sense in the time it had to come. And as an aside, our reunion's not that far off. Our reunion's just around the corner. If we have faith, we'll soon have sight. All right. One last thought in verses 5 through 7 before we look at verses 8 through 12. One thing I do not want us to miss. So Moses, he dies. God calls him home. God says, your utility is complete. Now enter into your rest. So God calls Moses home. Now with that said, Moses dies. I don't know if he's sitting, standing, or what have you, but 
Moses, he's done. Now, who's up there with him? Anyone? Bueller? God is with him, right? So who buries Moses? God. Look at the text again. Look at verses 5 through 7. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. Do you see this? Moses dies, and then God cradles his body. God cradles his body and takes him to his rest. And he takes him to a place where no one will know where the graveside is because people can be weird about relics and the like and going rushing and touching and receiving the blessing. God says, no, 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 we're not doing that. So God takes him, cradles his body, and he buries him in a location known only to God. There's no more tender picture, at least not many more tender pictures, that I can see with regards to our ones passing than to see this. See this picture of God cradling the body of Moses doing him this service, even in death, to see that he is buried. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This text bears witness to that. Let's look at verses 8 through 12. Verse 8. And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. And so the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him. And so the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. But, but since then there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And all the signs and wonders which the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, by all that mighty power and all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. You know one of the cruelest ironies of that text? For 30 days they mourned and they grieved, and actually this was a customary thing. We don't know that they were actually mourning and grieving like right there on you know, day 29 and then just stopped on day 30 or what have you. We don't know exactly how this works, but we know this much. While he was alive, the people didn't care for Moses. While he was alive, the people really, really went at Moses. They routinely rebelled and rejected and said, who put you in charge? They routinely critiqued his decisions. They critiqued his leadership. They critiqued everything about him. They grumbled and they complained. As we said, in Numbers 11, Moses even went to God and he says, just take me home. Take me home already. I've had my fill of these people. And yet, and yet, here's the thing. No one in the camp, no one in the camp of Israel that day remembered a time without his leadership, without Moses being in charge. Moses had been a a constant stabilizing force in their presence amidst all their difficulties. And now... Now he's gone. That can be challenging for us when we lose those who mean so much to us. We have individuals who have been a constant stabilizing force for so long. They've meant so much to us, and in God's time, he takes them. And yet, even as God took Moses, even as he cradled his body into the grave, God was not unconcerned with what happened to the people. And so God had raised up for the people a means of leadership, specifically Joshua, who would be no slouch for what it's worth, who would be no slouch. Whatever the case is, even as the people wept, which is a little ironic because they 
didn't love Moses too much while he was with them. We see that even as they're weeping, God has prepared a new leader. In verse 9, we see that he's raised up Joshua. In his providence, God uses different human instrumentation to do his will. At a certain point, all of us will be called home to glory, and God willing, God will have raised up other people, whether it's for this pulpit, for this church, or in Gulfport and the community around us. God is busy, as we've seen in the baptism this morning, building his kingdom and plugging and playing different individuals in at different times. Moses, my servant, is dead. I'll raise up Joshua. There was still good news for the people. God had not left them, even if Moses had. All right, with our remaining time this morning, I want to briefly reread the eulogy that we see in verses 10 through 12. We talked earlier about Moses with regards to who he was and the powerhouse he was, and no one was like Moses. Let me read these verses because they're somewhat unique. God doesn't do this for every prophet or individual in his word. Verse 10 says this, But since then, since that time, there's not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And all the signs and wonders which the Lord had sent him to do in the land of Egypt before Pharaoh, before all his servants, and in all his land, and by all that mighty power and all that great terror which Moses performed in the sight of Israel. All right. Thinking question. Who wrote Deuteronomy? Let me ask you the harder question. Who wrote those verses? Ah. We know that Moses wrote the Torah. What's the first book in the Torah? Genesis. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We know Moses wrote these books. He celebrated as the author of these books. Moses wrote Deuteronomy. And yet, who wrote that? But since then, there's not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And then it goes on to say about all that he did in the time of Pharaoh. Who wrote these words? Well, many, just as an aside, many believe that Joshua wrote these words. And the reason for that's twofold. Number one, Joshua was used to being Moses' assistant, for lack of a better word. He was used to basically being the guy, the number one, the Spock to his Kirk. He was used to being the guy who would come alongside and help and assist Moses across these years. And it makes some sense that Joshua was the one who wrote this passage, given that he was eyewitness to this stuff. He would have certainly been the best, most qualified candidate to write it. Others believe that possibly Ezra, which is a unique thought, but Ezra or other prophets may have been the ones to record them. Well, regardless of who it was that wrote these words, this epitaph, this eulogy here at the end of this book, regardless of who it was that wrote them, we do believe that they're inspired and inerrant and infallible, and their message is this. Moses was one of a kind. The Israelites could not have asked for a better leader, even if they didn't recognize it in the time that he was leading them. The Israelites could not have asked for a better intercessor on their behalf, a better deliverer. And yet, just as they would kill the prophets in the years thereafter, they routinely rejected and despised, just hated the very man that God had raised up to bless them. Now, over the centuries, the Israelites would come to see differently. It's funny how that works. Over the centuries, they would come to see differently. Over time, they would come to see Moses as the God-ordained instrument that he was the great intercessor, the great deliverer, the mediator of the Old Covenant. In time, they would come to see it. And to prove that they would see it in time, in synagogues, in the synagogues of Christ's time, you know what there was? One of the features of the synagogues? There was a seat. Do you know what it was called? The seat of Moses. The seat of Moses. In the synagogues, even in Christ's time, they would talk about the seat of Moses. And the point is this, that over the years, they began to understand Moses in ways that they didn't at the time he was leading. They began to revere him. They began to revere him to the point of even in their synagogue saying that the place, the seat where someone sits in order to read scripture from, the seat where the law is given, we'll call the seat 
of Moses. Now, before I pray this morning, let me ask you, a, I think, a very fascinating, very relevant question. It's actually a question that R.C. Sproul used to ask his students. Here's the question. This really is a thinking cap sort of question. Do you think Moses ever entered into the promised land? Now, I'm not using this as a euphemism. I'm not talking about heaven here. I'm not talking about that final rest. I mean the literal promised land with the dirt in the soil in Canaan. Do you think that Moses ever entered into the promised land? Did the feet of Moses ever stand in Canaan? What do you think? All right. I'm hearing both. All right, so here's the answer. Here's the answer. Do you remember in Matthew 17, the event that we call the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus Christ goes up a mountain. It's during his public ministry. He goes up this mountain. And when he gets to the top of the mountain, who does Jesus encounter there? Moses and Elijah. In the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes up, and he encounters the two titanic men of Israel's history. Elijah, on the one hand, the greatest of the prophets. You could say he typified all of the prophets. But Jesus also encounters Moses there in Canaan on the Mount of Transfiguration, standing amongst him. I think it's kind of fascinating. I think it's awesome that God in Deuteronomy 34 allowed, allowed Moses to see the promised land, just as he'd said. And he said he would die, and he did. And yet, how good is God that all those centuries later, Moses got to stand there? I think it's interesting to see how God fulfills his promises, sometimes in ways that we don't expect, and sometimes fulfills the desires of our hearts in ways that we don't expect. God had told Moses he would not lead the people into Canaan. He told him he would die before ever setting foot there. But in time, he gave him the privilege to stand where his eyes once beheld. In God's time, Moses' faith became sight. And I like that that's true in Deuteronomy 34. I also like that it's true in Matthew 17. And I like that it's true of us. Whatever you're clinging to this day, whatever faith is sustaining you to wake up tomorrow and get back at it, whatever faith is sustaining you to go about your jobs, your vocation, your family life in the midst of all the reasons just to stay in bed, know this, your faith will be validated in God's time. There is a day when your faith will become sight. Let's pray. To search through an archive of Dr. Holt's previous sermons, please visit us at fpcgulfport.org or you can look us up at sermonaudio.com.